It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, high fire in the fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. In the dark heart of the city... A mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, the dark heart of the city, but you wouldn't believe what cities we've actually been in over the last month. We've been in places like London, Scotland, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, who is, which is the capital of Scotland, I guess. York. York. Oxford. Oxford, Bath, where there are Roman baths, actual Roman baths. Side trips to Salisbury. Salisbury, yeah, we've been there. We've been all over the United fun. Kingdom. It was a lot of fun. We really the enjoyed Cotswolds. it. The <laughs> All right, yes, in the English countryside with its tiny. If you guys live in areas where there are gravel roads that are one way, basically. one way, basically, enough, <laughs> just enough for one horse and buggy. Well. That's pretty much the way it is over there. As a matter of fact, if you have a two-lane highway that is going through your place, two lanes on one side, two lanes on the other side, that is essentially the biggest highway or turnpike that they have in the entire country. So pretty interesting. Awesome people. Spoke to a few people there. Few that are of like mind with us, but there are a few. Yes, and, it's shocking. <laughs> and it's always it's always good to talk to folks from with a different viewpoint and talk to folks from with a similar viewpoint but in a different area with a lot of different rules. Well, anyhow, this is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a tidbit of triumph in a tumultuous that is confused and disorderly <laughs> definition for the day. Thank you. World. I'm Joel Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts, probably about 1,300 at this point, for any disaster. And I'm yeah. Amy Alton. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> I didn't know you were done. It's Anyway, Amy Alton, I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I want to say I did know your vocabulary word. Good. But I think that sometimes families listen to this, and it's good that you make the definition, put the definition right after the word, for everyone. Yes, absolutely. Just in case. Why not? And together, you know what we are? We are... The dynamic duo, the medical matrimony, the spectacular spouses and the hosts with the mosts. <laughs> Are you and trying job? to give yourself a tongue twister? <laughs> At this age, it's easy to twist my tongue. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and what is our purpose is to put a medically prepared person in every family. We're here to keep that faithful few ready to meet all challenges in good times or bad. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a demented dinosaur? If so, tell the bartender I'll have what you're having and make it a double. Our attorney says don't call us. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care 
wherever and whenever it is available. Of course, don't listen to a thing we say <laughs> in normal times. But in times of trouble, you got to show the world you got more sense than a package full of pack rats and get the training and education you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? You know what? You need that stuff. And there's no better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You will agree that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. You want more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. And don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. You Believe me, you will be glad that you did. Got an idea for a show topic or just want to ask the cranky old man or the pretty young lady a question? <laughs> Well, don't you wait, Nate. Send us an email or sign up to connect with us in these ways. Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast, which is what you're listening to, at AOL.com. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Our YouTube channel is drbones and Nurse Amy, and our Facebook page is Ta-da, doom and bloom. <laughs> <laughs> one easy go. one there. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well... I want to talk a little bit about something that would happen certainly in disaster settings, and that is mm -hmm. sleep deprivation oh my or gosh. insomnia. I have sleep deprivation right this second. Uh huh. I haven't had this in a long time. Even on our vacation, we were able to get sleep, even yeah, though we, we were, were six hours well. difference. That was mm -hmm. a little difficult, but just for the first couple nights, right. I could not sleep last night. I had one hour of sleep, oh, maybe boy. an hour and a half. Woke up at 1.30 and have not slept since. I don't know why. I did take a multivitamin at night. I looked that up and it said it's possibly vitamin D. Hmm. I don't know the might, mechanism of why vitamin D would keep you, keep you up. Yes. So I recommend, folks, if you're taking a multivitamin, try to remember it in the morning. Yep. Try to remember it first idea. thing. I can't put my finger on any other thing. I didn't have coffee last night at midnight, that's for sure. So Right, no caffeine or anything. No, so but I felt like happen? I had caffeine. Something? And I have I haven't taken a multivitamin in probably a few years. I we what we do is we take them separately. Mm. We have vitamin D, we have vitamin C, we have vitamin A. You know, we take them separately. Um, just so we know the exact dosages. I don't always think that a multivitamin is perfect for me in particular and perfect for all adults. So we like to tailor our vitamins to how much we think we should take. But I did take a multivitamin last night. And I have to say I'm, I kind of regret it because hmm. I can't put my finger on anything else. But I have sleep deprivation. So everything you're about to say right now, like forgetting to say my name mm -hmm. after you were finished <laughs> – that's part of sleep deprivation. That was proof in the pudding that I have sleep deprivation right well, there. As a nurse and especially as a midwife and, and for myself as a resident decades ago in a large inner city hospital and later then again in private practice for yes. both of us. Yes. Well, we learned what it was like to be up at all hours of the night and then have to work the next day. Well, and the worst part of it is usually we would probably be able to get home say late at night, mm -hmm. and start to sleep, and then someone would show up or we would get a text, not a text, I'm sorry, a beep. If anyone remembers beepers, we had to carry beepers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if they still make those. Betraying but our age. We had beepers, and the beeper would go off loudly at 2 a.m., and yeah. maybe, again, you were had slept for a couple of hours. Right, you, you might have just get, gotten home. Had to get right back up and be alert. Because right. you have two people Those whose lives, lives are, are in, in your, your hands, hands, the yes. mother and the infant, the baby. So you had to be on spot at the moment that you were getting in the car, because you didn't want to get in a car accident, mm -hmm. and the entire time you were at the hospital and driving home. And then, again, you would have to go to work the next day. So we spent many, many days at the office with one eye open with a lot of cups of coffee in our hand. 
But we can honestly say that's we spent years deprived of the seven to yeah. eight hours of Absolutely. sleep that's recommended for good health. Nowadays, things are different. A lot of OBs and a lot of midwives are hospitalists, as they call them. And they they're have basically shifts. employees. They have shifts, right? So when they're on they're, they're at on. night, they're on, and then they're off the next day or maybe two even. A lot of times, well, what we did when I was a labor... Not for us, though. No, no. But what I did is shift work when I was a labor and delivery nurse before I went back to school was we did 12 and a half hour shifts. Of course, the hospital made you work that extra half an hour for the lunch because, you know... God forbid they should actually pay you for a lunch. So we had to clock in at 6.45 a.m., and then I clocked out at 7.15 p.m. So I had to work that extra half an hour for my lunch. But we would work four days one week and then three days the next week. So you had more time off. So if they're doing shift work in hospitals, most likely they are doing 12-hour shifts. So they get four days off one week and three days off the next week. And You're plus, have they some have some semblance of a life. Yes, exactly. It's it's much much better if if no one's bothering you during that off time. Uh, it does make for quite a good life. I I felt that I was a better mom because I had some days off during the week. If I knew my kids were having events or things at school that I wanted to attend, I could sort of move my shifts around. Um, it worked out really good as as a mom of young kids. I will say that. So I hope that these doctors are having better schedules. For their lives, for their families' lives, and also for their patients' lives. That's right. Because more mistakes, I'm going to talk about that in just a second, more mistakes do occur when a medical provider doesn't get enough sleep. Sleep deprivation is a serious issue. Some researchers believe that it carries the same health risks that cigarettes and heart disease do. Oh, goodness. That's right. Maybe I should go take a nap and let you finish this. Feel free, I bet people Feel listening free, would, would agree with that. Feel free, Let Amy take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you, there's mental, there's physical deterioration. Sleep deprivation can break you so much so that it's actually used as a method of torture. I think we know that as I well. I feel kind of tortured in... right now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> now, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, estimate that up to 50 to 70 million Americans suffer from some kind of sleep disorder. And by the way, a lot of people say sleep deprivation. A lot of people say insomnia. Are they the same, exactly the same thing? No, there is a difference between one and the other. Insomnia refers to the inability to sleep adequately despite being given the opportunity. Gotcha. Whereas sleep deprivation refers to lack of sleep due to some restriction of the chance to sleep. I had insomnia. For us, nights on call. No, exactly. no, you No, had, last night I had insomnia. Oh, last night you had insomnia. Yes. Because you were. When you were. It's not like you were kicking me or something, right. you know, in your sleep. No. So I had the opportunity to sleep and was unable to sleep. And when you were working on call as a midwife, you were had sleep deprivation yes. because you were on call and you didn't have the chance to sleep. No, I didn't. There was a restriction to that. So the health risks are similar, however, so we're going to address them together today. Now, what does this have to do with medical preparedness? In the aftermath of a major disaster, you're going to be pretty certain that sleep disorder problems are going to increase in number and are going to increase in severity, stress and worry and all this stuff. And, of course, Oh, and the whole sleep sleep environment. Right. You might not have your bed. You might be sleeping outside. Right. There might be be bugs. Right. Can you imagine worrying about something slithering underneath your your covers? Sure. Naked and afraid is a good example of that. Yeah. You may or may not have a tent covering some protection from the elements. You might be freezing. You might be sweating. We had a couple of hotels that didn't have air conditioning, and they had a heat wave. Those two days, a of course. Wave there. Well, that was a crazy, heat. 88 degrees. And it was supposed to be a high of 72 <laughs> or something, 73. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, but anyway, you could be sweating. You could be freezing. I mean, there's a number of things. And, you you know, just not being in your own bed, even people who go on vacations and stay in hotel rooms, it's not your bed. It's not your pillows. It's not your – the noises. You might hear noises through walls. Again, we were talking about outdoor noises from – the nature <laughs> from nature itself so there's a lot of reasons why that would 
be a big, big factor yeah, it's certainly, uh, during survival is sleep deprivation. Certainly difficult to be at 100% efficiency, and that's at a time when you need to be at 110% efficiency. Right. efficiency. So what can I say that is going to negatively affect your chances for survival? Now, how would sleep deprivation worsen those chances? What mm-hmm. happens actually with sleep deprivation? The parts of the brain that are involved in alertness and attention are called the thalamus, and the area that controls a lot of higher-level thought processes is called the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. It's prefrontal. It's in the front of your skull there. And both of these are especially vulnerable to damage from lack of sleep. If the brain doesn't get enough rest, judgment may be impaired, and you may be incapable of putting events in the proper perspective, for example. And this, well, this causes mistakes. Forgetfulness also. Absolutely. Like forgetting to say your name after your husband finishes introducing himself. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm just not saying this. uh, This is borne out by scientific studies. The British Medical Journal suggests that the effects of 17 to 21 hours of sleep, or without sleep, rather, without sleep, in a row, is the equivalent in terms of affecting behavior of having a blood alcohol level close to the legal limit for intoxication. A number of articles have evaluated the performance of medical residents. Remember I mentioned that there are more mistakes. Sure enough, they took medical residents that were getting less than four hours of sleep and Uh compared them to places where medical residents got seven to eight hours of sleep. And there were a lot more medical errors made in the group that had less sleep. And so this has led many teaching hospitals to change the workload and hour of many of their interns and residents. Uh, by the way, if you're one of them out there, please let me know what your schedule is like these days. Yeah, it's it would been be a long time since we have been in a teaching facility. Although my youngest has a friend who's in her fourth year of medical school. But that's so different. she's gonna. But what I'm saying is, next year we'll know. she's gonna experience exactly <laughs> what you're talking about, and I'm sure my daughter's gonna tell me that's why she didn't want to go to medical school. See, mom, look what's happening to my friend. Oh boy, <laughs> give me a break. I know, <laughs> so sad. Now, how about elderly folks? Don't older folks normally sleep less hours and sleep less deeply? And that's true. Studies show that the elderly do get less sleep. But it's not necessarily because they need less sleep. Sleep could be affected for all sorts of reasons. There could be sleep apnea, arthritis pain, heart issues. There's so many different things that old folks have that can affect their sleep pattern that it's probably due to that. It's not necessarily just, well, that's what a normal old person does. Now, those people that are in their later years also might develop something called advanced sleep phase syndrome. And in this instance, there's an inability to stay awake until normal bedtime and then inability to stay asleep until a desired wake time. And that sort of screws up the schedule for everybody. So I got to say to describe it better, maybe I would paraphrase Ben Franklin. Too early to bed, too early to rise. Yes, but that's the opposite of what he said. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So it's a a big problem for a lot of old folks. Now, the failure to get your seven to eight hours of sleep every night, it causes a whole set of symptoms, all of which I've experienced in my life, and none of which are particularly good in natural disasters or any other survival setting. Uh, Irritability, depression, tremors, bloodshot, puffy eyes, headaches, confusion, memory loss. Thank God I didn't get these in severe... (laughs) You don't have quantities. them at all. I have. Made, well, now I do, but thank goodness as a resident and as a practicing physician, I didn't. Uh, muscle aches, hallucinations. I don't have those now, even now. Uh, worsened <laughs> control of diabetes and high blood pressure, probably. Um, and blackouts lasting up to 30 seconds. Now, I didn't have this, but I had a bunch of my f- friends who were residents with me yeah. would go and have these things called micro-sleeps. Mm-hmm. And what they would do right in the middle of doing something or right in the middle of writing a note, let's say, uh, about what they saw when they charting, examined right. a patient, charting. Now uh, they actually type into a computer right, what or, they signed. Right. Well, we used to have to physically handwrite everything. Right, exactly. So well, when they were charting. These guys would just nod off. They would oh, just boom. Just go to sleep. <laughs> Once I actually heard somebody's forehead just bump. Oh, the, no. Bop the, the table. I mean, that's that's how 
bad it got. As a matter of fact, once my surgical assistant, who was a junior, junior resident, uh-huh. actually collapsed, just <gasps> fell right over, was oh fell asleep, goodness. fell right over, not into the patient, thank goodness, because her belly was open. But uh, I'll tell you, she hit the ground, you know, with a, with that a is scary. thud. Wow. And those things do happen. So it just goes to show that it's very important to get the amount of sleep. And the funny thing about some people is that they really are able to go with less sleep. There's actually some kind of genetic, they think it's genetic, ability to sleep less hours and still be alert. Uh, It seems to involve about maybe 5% of the population Probably genetic. Nobody knows, but there are people like that. Maybe uh, somebody, people say that Donald Trump gets very little sleep every night. Uh, Bill Clinton also used to claim that he had like about five hours sleep maximum every night. Wow. Even Winston Churchill was like that as well. Now, there are things that you can do to get a few more hours of shut-eye every night. The best start is to consider a concept that we'll call sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene involves adjusting your behavior to uh, maximize the amount of restful sleep you get. Mm -hmm. What you should consider doing is sticking to a standard bedtime and wake-up time. You want to make your bedtime environment as comfortable as possible. You want to avoid nicotine, caffeine, alcohol before going to bed. You want to stay away from heavy foods for at least two hours before going to sleep. Exercise regularly, but not just before going to bed. You don't want to do it just before going to bed. It will not help you go to sleep. And just remember that chocolate has caffeine. I think a lot of people forget that. So if you have something that has chocolate on it or like chocolate ice cream before you go to bed, that may keep you awake. So be careful of chocolate also. Another important thing is to eliminate as much light as possible in the room at bedtime. You want to keep as little stimulus going there that are going to keep you awake. Also, don't forget, there's LED lights on all kinds of things now. Oh, yeah. Even our outlets have LED lights that are little blue glowing lights or green glowing lights. And I've covered them. I actually unplugged one from my side of the bed. Too much light. You know, even from your the DVD players or also from uh, cable boxes, All these things emit lights. So, I mean, unless you need lights to actually guide you to the restroom and maybe you could just get motion sensor night lights in your your area on the way. Yeah, that would be probably a better idea. At least it would shut off so you could go back to sleep. But unless you need something on all the time, try to shut all of that off. Cover it, shut it off, unplug it, and just make it really, really dark. And you have to try to shut your mind off as well. You have to keep your mind clear of stressful issues as much as possible at bedtime. That is so important. By the way, a lot of these strategies that I'm mentioning right now work pretty well for those people that are struggling with working night shifts. So some of these are pretty good things. And most important, I think, is to stick to standard bedtime, meal times, wake-up times, and you'll have a better chance of getting through that night shift. You know what would be a good idea? If we had something called a mind box. It was like yes. a little music box next to your bed, and you open it up, and you kind of put gra- your brain grab, in it. grab off the top of your head and grab all of your stresses and then grab both of your shoulders and then put your hands into the box and then close the box. And you have now put all of your worries and troubles into the box, and you will not open the box until the morning. And then you can worry about all that stuff later. And bingy, bangy, boogie. Yes, absolutely. Could that be a placebo is... effect, but maybe someday they'll invent something like that. You could just shut off the worries until you wake up the next morning. Well, if we talk about non-placebos, there are drugs like Ambien, Halcyon, all sorts of drugs on the market that will help you sleep. But I think a better alternative oh, they have to side effects. start with, be and careful. they do have side yeah. effects as they get you, make you groggy, I think. Or sometimes you sleepwalk, have terrible nightmares. Right. You know, right. Well, maybe if I a took, warm glass of milk. One thing I recommend <laughs> for a stockpiling for sleep is Benadryl. Benadryl at 50 milligrams will really knock you out. But the next day you will feel groggy. Absolutely. That is just one Melatonin of those Melatonin is not a bad idea. If you can get a low dose of melatonin, again, that worked with uh, my daughter. 
has some growth problems. We did melatonin to get her more sleep, and she grew fine. And my dad was having trouble sleeping, and he used melatonin. I used it and had absolutely um, horrific nightmares. But I tend to have more nightmares, so it, it just made it worse for me, which didn't make me feel better when I woke up in the morning. <laughs> but melatonin is very helpful for a lot of people and gives them some restful sleep without having to use a prescription drug. There are a lot of people that have used alternative remedies for sleepliness, sleep, sleeplessness. Yes. And chamomile tea is one. Cava root tea is another. Mm -hmm. Lavender tea, val valerian root, catnip. All of these are helpful in terms of increasing the amount of sleep that you are able to get. Good. Now, good nutrition is important for general health. Some foods, though, are also thought to be helpful in promoting a good night's sleep. A lot of substances contain sleep-inducing or muscle-relaxing compounds like melatonin, like you just mentioned, Amy. Magnesium does it too. Tryptophan also. Uh, oh, some... the old turkey sleep. Right. There you go. Right. right, right. <laughs> After Thanksgiving. <laughs> there you go. Oatmeal has melatonin in it. Milk has tryptophan. Almonds have tryptophan and magnesium. Bananas, melatonin, and magnesium. Whole wheat bread helps release tryptophan mm -hmm. into your system. And, of course, there are all these alternative physical things to do, too. Of course, yoga is very helpful in decreasing stress. Massage, meditation. A lot of people fall asleep when they have a massage. And so these are some pretty good things. Even acupuncture has been thought by some people to be effective in dealing with sleep deprivation. So staying healthy, whether in normal times or in the aftermath of a disaster, involves not only maintaining good physical health, but maintaining good sleep hygiene. That's so important to be at 100% efficiency. So get some rest. Hey, you know, one thing I come across from time to time, on social media especially, is the persistent notion that tampons, a feminine sanitary product, uh, that tampons are... are Excellent addition to your medical kit. Now, I've read accounts by many people, usually second or third hand, that these items saved the life of a soldier because a very savvy medic made sure to carry what some people call tactical tampons. Tactical tampons. You know what that in is? Their pack. That's the name of a YouTube video I just put up. Oh, okay. So Well, we like to do articles and we like to have them on our podcast and then we talk about them on our YouTube because people learn in different, different ways. ways right? Some people want to learn while they're driving in the car and busy doing other things through the podcast. Others have time to sit and read articles. Some people don't. And others want to have it read to them and explained to them face-to-face -face by you or me and, you know, maybe some visual um, right. Trickery, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Webinars this is, and stuff. This yeah. is what we have. No, I mean during the, the YouTube videos. Oh, right, yes. right, right. Props is right. the word I'm looking well, we for. Well, you'll see a lot of demonstration in our that latest YouTube video you mentioned. Yep. And what is it called? The tactical tampon? Yeah, and then a whole bunch <laughs> of other words after that. All right. Well, anyhow, I'm too polite to call these stories that you see on social media a bunch of hooey. So, but, so let's just say they're, wow, really? Amazing. Amazing. Right? Yes, they are. <laughs> now, why would I, uh, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and OBGYN, a guy who's dealt with his share of significant bleeding, have doubts about the benefits of sticking tampons into bullet holes? Well, let's talk a little bit about what happens in the case of ballistic trauma. Now, that's something I've written and spoken about a lot of times over the years. When soft tissue is struck by a projectile at high speed, it causes a cavity. It causes basically a channel. And that is basically the route through which the projectile traverses. It might be straight. It might bounce off things, ribs or, or spine, things like that. And as a matter of fact, there's not just one channel. There's two channels. There's a permanent one that's caused by the actual path of the projectile not to mention any fragments. And there's a larger one that's caused by the shock wave that's released into the body as this thing passes through at extremely high speed. Vessels and organs that are affected by the shock wave might not even be in the direct line of the permanent cavity, but they can be damaged. They can be caused to bleed as a result of this shock that they experience. 
And all this with an entry wound that might not even perfectly fit a tampon. People say, oh, well, it looks like it would fit a bullet wound. The tampon I'm looking at right now uh, would maybe fit a 50 caliber machine gun wound, but probably not most other wounds. But in any case, what we have is bullets traveling at high speed that go deep into the body. And the deeper that they go into the body, well, the lot, a lot deeper it is that a tampon has to go to actually do anything. And a tampon really is not going to be able to cover these types of things. I have a, a graph which shows typical handgun wounds, mm-hmm. things that go actually into the body slower than rifle wounds, and they're going in 12 inches, 14 inches, or more. So you're just not going to get a tampon into that area. I mean, you try to you plug a hole, if you can get it into the bullet hole itself, even a bullet hole that fits a tampon, it's not going to stop the bleeding inside. The body is going to find that damaged areas of the body are going to find ways to pool that blood internally or maybe find an exit wound somewhere to bleed out of. And the tampon that's there, well, it's just concealing the bleeding. It is not stopping the bleeding. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it isn't happening. Tampons are meant to deal with something called menstrual bleeding, basically the type of bleeding that occurs in females when they have their uh, periods. And that's a type of bleeding that isn't under terribly much pressure. Uh, And that's much unlike the blood that's coming out of a ruptured artery, which is spurting out with a great deal of pressure. If you compare uh, a tampon with an unwrapped, uh, let's say, compressed gauze dressing, let's say an H&H dressing, well, the H&H dressing is 4 inches by 12 feet, and a tampon is pretty much about 2 by 4 inches if you spread it out, and that's not easy to do either. But... Essentially, I think just about any compressed gauze dressing or any gauze roll would probably be superior to any tampon. Now, how much blood do you actually absorb with a tampon? If it's a light tampon, about six grams. That's not much at all. It's maybe a little bit more than a tablespoon or so. If you have a super-duper tampon, well, maybe 15, maybe 18, you know, several tablespoons. But still, that's not so much, especially if there's arterial bleeding. The rest of the blood goes somewhere else. Now, you should know that tampons are clean items, but they're not sterile. I see that all the time on social media, people saying that tampons are sterile. They are not sterile. They're clean. They're not, they have no debris or anything like that. They're clean, but they're not sterile. Now, standard dressings that are used for wound care or traumatic injuries are sterile, like they, that H&H dressing I just mentioned, by and large. And having, having seen wound infections, they definitely should be. Now, some people believe that tampons are a formidable pressure dressing. To me, not so much. The ability to absorb a small amount of bleeding and a serious wound packing are two different things. A tampon's good at the first, not the second. A tampon works for what the good Lord and Procter & Gamble intended it for. And you have to sort of really think to try to find another possible purpose for it in a medical kit. Maybe it might make a difference in a nosebleed if you have the right size nostril, I guess, along with pressure. pressure. But the thing is, you got to get it up far enough to where the actual bleeding is. And you know what? I'm just going to be honest here. Four by four gauzes are super cheap. (laughs) Honestly, you could just roll those into a circle and put them up the nose just as easily as putting a tampon. Right. I don't even know how much tampons cost. How much do tampons cost? <sighs> Nobody knows. It's a mystery. Who knows? It's always just in the grocery bill. I don't pay attention. I really don't. Oh, you just don't care about no, the price of tampons? No. What I care about uh-huh. is, is a brand, okay? That's what I care about. And whatever the price happens to be is just what I'm going to have to do. Because you know what? Seriously, I don't want to get toxic shock syndrome or have some, you know, they had a recall. Of tampons? Yes, they did just, um, I think, a year ago. I forget the brand. I think it was Kotex. (laughs) They were having, they they were falling apart when women took them out. And people were having problems with infections. 
So this is just one more reason not to stick a tampon in a wound is you might not pull out the whole thing. Now you've got pieces of gauze stuck in there. And that can cause toxic shock syndrome by just sort of hanging out in there. Or if it's in a wound, an infection, because you don't even realize it, it left some pieces. Very scary. So it's just one more reason not to stick it in a wound. There you go. I, you I guess buy gauze. I'm like still I said, trying to think about cheap, it. Especially the non-sterile. If we're talking about stopping bleeding, it doesn't have to be sterile. You could buy those 200 brick packs that we have of the thick 4x4 four four squares for like $6, $8. I mean, they're not much money depending on the, the thickness. So it's not a lot for 200 of them. That's right. That's by the way, guys. <laughs> by the way, guys, out there, we actually do sell our individual medical supplies by the case. If you want to get a large amount of them, just send us an email at drbonespodcast@aol.com, and we'll be happy to give you a quote on a price for you know a a lot of medical dressings and other other at supplies. a very reasonable <clears throat> price but wait a minute now, now going Instead back to this boxes of tampons but going going expensive. back going back to this now i'm trying to think of another reason maybe it might work on a very okay, so shallow we've, we've agreed on maybe nosebleeds maybe nosebleeds if it's if the bleeding is reachable by the tampon and you and you continue to apply pressure you have to apply pressure with your fingers no matter what i would use the thinnest <clears throat> tampons then i wouldn't get those super tampons because they're too thick most people's nasal cavity up there where you actually have the bleeding is very narrow. We're talking about the bridge of your nose. That You don't bleed by your nostril. I don't know if most people are aware of that. You, yeah, you bleed, bleed further much up further usually, up. Yeah. You don't realize it. But you need to get that gauze up there. If, if the tampon is wider than even your pinky, it's not going to go up there. Right. Not well, easily. It's true. It, in reality, it's probably better to have just a little Kelly clamp and just use that to thread up four by fours or other another kind out. of leave roll. Leave a piece out that you can yes, grab. Yes, that's you grab. Yes, you don't want it you know, to get stuck there. Yes. that's right, like a peanut. But or something. anyway, I do agree with the the nose bleeding if it's the thinnest ones. Mm-hmm. But I really can't think of anything else, especially now. Well, I was thinking they're changing some of the consistency of these tampons they're making them cheaper and cheaper and charging more and more now i understand this whole tampon thing maybe 30 years ago or 40 years ago when they were super super cheap probably cheaper than gauze was now it's switched tampons are not cheap anymore you're making a hefty investment for something that might not do the right job might not be the right size and might actually make things a lot worse and that doesn't sound like a good choice to me right well, that's it. There there you have it, I think, in, in a nutshell. I think that you would do as well with direct pressure on, on a wound or better than you would with using a tampon, even if it was a perfectly sized wound for a tampon, maybe a shallow stab wound with a little bit of bleeding. I still think you'd probably be better off just with any kind of barrier dressing and uh, a good direct firm pressure. So... In your medical kit, get some rolls of gauze, get some uh, H&H dressings, get Israeli battle dressings for more pressure. And all of these things would be a lot more useful than a box of tampons. You'd even be better served by getting some of the fine hemostatic bandages that are on the market, C-Lox, Quick Clot, Kytosam. Uh, they're expensive, but you're talking about saving a life here, guys. So, you know, the money has to be secondary. You need to have some of these in your pack if you don't. You sh- you definitely should. You'll find those on our store, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- don't get me wrong. I'm all for improvisation. I write about it often. Absolutely. Many of our kits carry a number of, uh, let's say, tongue depressors, for example. One is good for looking at your throat, but could also serve as a splint for a fractured finger. If you put a few of them together, they might make a reasonable tourniquet windlass. Absolutely. One of our recent videos was on how to use sheets and use them as triangular bandages, bandages. Yes. and Set. all the things you could use them for. Right. Just white cotton sheets. Right. Check out the YouTube video. That that was about a month or maybe two months ago. So anyhow, if you're a combat medic who used a tampon on a bleeding casualty and the surgical team didn't find a lot of blood internally somewhere, afterwards, after the evac, well, good job. And you saved a life there, buddy. Uh, I'll bet, however, that actual verifications by surgical teams about that are pretty few and far between. So 
Nurse Amy, yes. she has, you have your own thoughts on the subject, which you put on the store, right? You Yes. So. I have a little blog. I don't post much because mostly we put our articles on doomandbloom.net. But on store.doomandbloom.net, there is a blog, and you actually put a link to it. So yes. if you just go to doomandbloom.net, find the tampon article, at the bottom of that, you put a link to my thoughts. And okay. my thoughts were many years ago. Um, but even now, again, what I'm saying is I'm seeing a huge price change. Think, they're putting less tampons in a box and charging more, just like with everything, with soda and and anything they can get away with, making the the size of the contents of the box inside less. I'm sure you're getting less cereal. You're getting less crackers. Everything you buy is less. So you're getting less tampons, and they're raising the prices. So it just doesn't make economical sense anymore. I understand, again, many years ago when it was a cheap option to do that instead. It's no longer the cheaper option. So if it's not the cheaper option and it really has nothing but possible downfalls, I see no reason to ever buy tampons. And I don't even have the, the money situation in my article because back then when I wrote it, they weren't too bad. Things are just getting outrageously expensive if they can get away with it. And women have to buy these things. Right. We're forced. Cap- it's a captive audience. What are we going to do? You know? <clears throat> Go back to... Oh, I don't even want to think about it. In the near future, we're going to talk about sanitary napkins like maxi pads as a medical supply off the grid. And we'll see what those are like. Oh, I want to talk... I don't have too much time left. I want to talk a little bit about turmeric uh, I don't know if you know what turmeric is. Turmeric is a flowering plant. Uh, it's called curcuma longa, and it's a member of the ginger family, and the roots of which uh, are used in cooking. Turmeric is a spice that gives curry its yellow flavor. So if you've ever eaten Indian food from India, well, you are well acquainted with it. Indians also use turmeric for a number of medicinal purposes in what they call Ayurvedic medicine. I actually had a, a doctor asked to write an article for our website about Ayurvedic medicine. I'll see what he has to put together. And uh, we certainly appreciate his uh, offer of a contribution. Absolutely. Turmeric contains bioactive compounds that do have some medicinal properties. When the zombie apocalypse arrives, let's face it, your bottles of commercial drugs, they're just going to run out pretty quickly. You better have some alternatives to actually do something for medical issues you'll face in times of trouble. And maybe having some turmeric or curcumin is not a bad idea. Curcumin is the main ingredient in turmeric. It has powerful anti-inflammatory effects, very strong antioxidant. And uh, you'll find that in just about every amount, every ounce of turmeric has a, a certain amount of curcumin. And science actually has started to back up a little bit about what the Ayurvedic uh, medicine healers have known for a while that it does contain those compounds like curcuminoids that will actually do something for you. Now, most of the studies that have been done on this herb use turmeric extracts that contain mostly curcumin itself with dosages usually exceeding one gram per day. And it's hard to reach this level just using turmeric spice. You might actually consider getting some curcumin or some uh, supplements that have a lot of curcumin. An interesting thing about curcumin is that it helps to consume black pepper with it. Black pepper has something called piperidine, or piperine, rather. Oh, my gosh. Not piperidine, piperine, (laughs) sometimes called biopurine. And that's a natural substance that supposedly enhances the absorption of curcumin by a lot. And so most of the supplements you'll see will have black pepper and curcumin which I hope they can put that into a capsule or something because that would be might be a little too much just on the tongue there, huh? Yes, exactly. So anyhow, scientists believe now that chronic low-level inflammation plays a major role in a lot of chronic diseases, a lot of diseases you see in the West here, heart disease and Alzheimer's and a lot of degenerative conditions. So anything that might help fight inflammation might be useful to the medic, right? And so how does curcumin do this? Curcumin blocks a molecule that travels into the nuclei of your cells and it turns on genes that are related to inflammation. And so this molecule that's supposed to play a major role in this inflammation 
is blocked by the curcumin and therefore you have less inflammation. Let's talk about heart disease. Certainly that is related to a lot of inflammation, inflammation of the endothelium, and that's the lining, the inside lining of your blood vessels. Uh, several studies suggest that curcumin does lead to improvement in the function of the endothelium and helps prevent, well, the accumulation of plaques that occur on the inside of, let's say, the coronary vessels. And some studies seem to believe that it's as good as exercising. Other studies say that it works as well as some drugs called statins, like Lipitor, Atervastin, uh, and other ones like that. Now, there are some studies that say that it doesn't do quite that much, but it's something that it's interesting that even WebMD found some evidence that it may be helpful. Turmeric is also thought to increase the antioxidant capacity of the body. Now, I've talked about antioxidants before on this show. Uh, we have oxidative damage that occurs to our body with aging. And essentially, it's the human equivalent of rust. And many diseases actually are related to oxidative damage. Now, I'm not saying any of this stuff cures cancer. and You should be aware of any substance that claim, that's claimed to be a cure-all. But there are some studies that do support its effectiveness for that. So let's talk about what WebMD says. WebMD says that curcumin or turmeric uh, containing curcumin is possibly effective for a number of problems. Now, they won't say that. Oftentimes, they'll say it's probably ineffective or ineffective, considered ineffective. You know, so it's based on the various studies. It actually is thought to have some beneficial effect in hay fever. If you take curcumin, it seems to reduce hay fever symptoms such as sneezing, itchy, runny nose, congestion. It's thought to be helpful for depression. Most available research show that taking curcumin reduces depression symptoms in people that are already using an antidepressant. In one recent study, a group was given Prozac, another group was given curcumin, and a third group was given both. And after six weeks, curcumin had led to improvements that were similar to those of Prozac. And the group that took both Prozac and curcumin actually fared best. High levels of cholesterol, like I mentioned, that seem to be uh, bad for your heart. Well, turmeric seems to lower levels of blood fats called triglycerides that you have there. It's part of your lipid panel if you go to the doctor for your heart. Uh, the effects of turmeric... Uh, on cholesterol, do conflict. There are some that say it doesn't do anything. Others say that it's helpful, but there are there is some evidence. So, other things, osteoarthritis. Now, this one I think there is a lot more hard data on. Some research shows that taking turmeric extracts alone or in combination with other ingredients can reduce pain and improve function in people with osteoarthritis, especially in places like the knee. And they think it works about as well as ibuprofen for reducing the pain of osteoarthritis, the kind of arthritis that occurs with aging. Even the liver seems to be helped by it. Tur taking uh, turmeric reduces markers of liver injury in people who have had liver disease not caused by alcohol. It doesn't seem to do too much for people that are alcoholics, but if you have liver disease caused by something else, it may be helpful. And also, it may be good for itching, just itching in general, not just in hay fever. Taking turmeric by mouth three times a day for a period of time, several weeks, reduces itching in people with long-term kidney disease, for example. And, of course, they, if they add curcumin with black pepper daily for four weeks, it reduces a lot of the symptoms that you would see in that. It's worth a shot. Let's put it that way. So the bottom line, turmeric and especially its active compound curcumin, they have a role in the natural section of your medical woodshed in disaster or austere settings. If you haven't started a medicinal herb garden in your yard yet, well, you know what? You might consider it next growing season. You're going to need answers for when the medicines run out in times of trouble. And the plants in your own backyard might just be the answer. That's all the time we have for this week. We want to thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We hope you'll listen every week as we bring you interesting topics. Interesting? Were they interesting today? They were, actually. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear it, and we will see you next week. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.